Chapter Seven of Specimen Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Jakeway. Specimen Days by Walt Whitman. Chapter Seven. Sherman's Army's Jubilation. Its sudden stoppage. When Sherman's armies, long after they left Atlanta, were marching through South and North Carolina, after leaving Savannah, the news of Lee's capitulation having been received, the men never moved a mile without from some part of the line sending up continued, inspiriting shouts. At intervals all day long sounded out the wild music of those peculiar army cries. They would be commenced by one regiment or brigade, immediately taken up by others, and at length whole corps and armies would join in these wild triumphant choruses. It was one of the characteristic expressions of the western troops and became a habit, serving as a relief and outlet to the men, a vent for their feelings of victory, returning peace, etc. Morning, noon, and afternoon, spontaneous, for occasion or without occasion, these huge, strange cries, differing from any other, echoing through the open air for many a mile, expressing youth, joy, wildness, irrepressible strength, and the ideas of advance and conquest sounded along the swamps and uplands of the south, floating to the skies. There never were men that kept in better spirits in danger or defeat. What then could they do in victory? said one of the 15th Corps to me afterwards. This exuberance continued till the armies arrived at Raleigh. There the news of the President's murder was received. Then, no more shouts or yells for a week. All the marching was comparatively muffled. It was very significant, hardly a loud word or laugh in many of the regiments. A hush and silence pervaded all. No good portrait of Lincoln. Probably the reader has seen physiognomies, often old farmers, sea captains, and such, that, behind their homeliness, or even ugliness, held superior points so subtle yet so palpable, making the real life of their faces almost as impossible to depict as a wild perfume or fruit taste, or a passionate tone of the living voice. And such was Lincoln's face, the peculiar color, the lines of it, the eyes, mouth, expression. Of technical beauty it had nothing, but to the eye of a great artist it furnished a rare study, a feast and fascination, the current portraits are all failures, most of them caricatures. Released Union Prisoners from South The released prisoners of war are now coming up from the southern prisons. I have seen a number of them. The sight is worse than any sight of battlefields, or any collection of wounded, even the bloodiest. There was, as a sample, one large boatload of several hundreds brought about the 25th to Annapolis, and out of the whole number only three individuals were able to walk from the boat. The rest were carried ashore and laid down in one place or another. Can those be men, those little, livid, brown, ash-streaked, monkey-looking dwarfs? Are they really not mummied, dwindled corpses? They lay there, most of them quite still, but with a horrible look in their eyes and skinny lips, often with not enough flesh on the lips to cover their teeth. Probably no more appalling sight was ever seen on this earth. There are deeds, crimes that may be forgiven, but this is not among them. It steeps its perpetrators in blackest, escapeless, endless damnation. 
Over fifty thousand have been compelled to die the death of starvation. Reader, did you ever try to realize what starvation actually is? In those prisons, and in a land of plenty. An indescribable meanness, tyranny, aggravating course of insults, almost incredible, was evidently the rule of treatment through all the southern military prisons. The dead there are not to be pitied as much as some of the living that come from there, if they can be called living. Many of them are mentally imbecile and will never recuperate. Note, from a review of Andersonville, a story of southern military prisons, published serially in the Toledo Blade in 1879 and afterwards in book form, quote, There is a deep fascination in the subject of Andersonville, for that Golgotha, in which lie the whitening bones of 13,000 gallant young men, represents the dearest and costliest sacrifice of the war for the preservation of our national unity. It is a type, too, of its class. Its more than hundred hecatombs of dead represent several times that number of their brethren, for whom the prison gates of Belle Isle, Danville, Salisbury, Florence, Columbia, and Cahaba opened only in eternity. There are few families in the North who have not at least one dear relative or friend among these sixty thousand whose sad fortune it was to end their service for the Union by lying down and dying for it in a southern prison pen. The manner of their death, the horrors that clustered thickly around every moment of their existence, the loyal, unfaltering steadfastness with which they endured all that fate had brought them, has never been adequately told. It was not with them as with their comrades in the field, whose every act was performed in the presence of those whose duty it was to observe such matters and report them to the world. Hidden from the view of their friends in the north by the impenetrable veil which the military operations of the rebels drew around their so-called confederacy, the people knew next to nothing of their career or their sufferings. Thousands died there less heeded even than the hundreds who perished on the battlefield. Grant did not lose as many men killed outright in the terrible campaign from the wilderness to the James River, forty-three days of desperate fighting, as died in July and August at Andersonville. Nearly twice as many died in that prison as fell from the day that Grant crossed the Rapidan, till he settled down in the trenches before Petersburg. More than four times as many Union dead lie under the solemn sighing pines about that forlorn little village in southern Georgia, then mark the course of Sherman from Chattanooga to Atlanta. The nation stands aghast at the expenditure of life which attended the two bloody campaigns of 1864, which virtually crushed the Confederacy, but no one remembers that more Union soldiers died in the rear of the rebel lines than were killed in the front of them. The great military events which stamped out the rebellion drew attention away from the sad drama which starvation and disease played, in those gloomy pens in the far recesses of somber southern forests. From a letter of Johnny Bouquet in New York Tribune, March 27, 81. I visited Salisbury, North Carolina, the prison pen or the site of it, from which nearly 11,000 victims of southern politicians were buried, being confined in a pen without shelter, exposed to all the elements could do, to all the disease-hurting animals together could create, and to all the starvation and cruelty an incompetent and intense caitiff government could accomplish. From the conversation and almost from the recollection of the northern people this place has dropped, but not so in the gossip of the Salisbury people, nearly all of whom say that the half was never told, 
that such was the nature of habitual outrage here that when federal prisoners escaped the townspeople harbored them in their barns afraid the vengeance of god would fall on them to deliver even their enemies back to such cruelty said one man at the boyden house who joined in the conversation one evening there were often men buried out of that prison pen still alive I have the testimony of a surgeon that he had seen them pulled out of the dead cart with their eyes open and taking notice, but too weak to lift a finger. There was not the least excuse for such treatment, as the Confederate government had seized every sawmill in the region, and could just as well have put up shelter for these prisoners as not, wood being plentiful here. It will be hard to make any honest man in Salisbury say that there was the slightest necessity for those prisoners having to live in old tents, caves, and holes half full of water. Representations were made to the Davis government against the officers in charge of it, but no attention was paid to them. Promotion was the punishment for cruelty there. The inmates were skeletons. Hell could have no terrors for any man who died there, except the inhuman keepers. Death of a Pennsylvania Soldier Frank H. Irwin, Company E, 93rd Pennsylvania, died May 1, 65. My letter to his mother. Dear Madam, No doubt you and Frank's friends have heard the sad fact of his death in hospital here, through his uncle or the lady from Baltimore who took his things. I have not seen them, only heard of them visiting Frank. I will write you a few lines as a casual friend that sat by his deathbed. Your son, Corporal Frank H. Irwin, was wounded near Fort Fisher, Virginia, March 25, 1865. The wound was in the left knee, pretty bad. He was sent up to Washington, was received in Ward C, Armory Square Hospital, March 28th. The wound became worse, and on the 4th of April the leg was amputated a little above the knee. The operation was performed by Dr. Bliss, one of the best surgeons in the Army. He did the whole operation himself. There was a good deal of bad matter gathered. The bullet was found in the knee. For a couple of weeks afterwards, he was doing pretty well. I visited and sat by him frequently, as he was fond of having me. The last ten or twelve days of April I saw that his case was critical. He previously had some fever with cold spells. The last week in April he was much of the time flighty, but always mild and gentle. He died first of May. The actual cause of death was pyemia, the absorption of the matter in the system instead of its discharge. Frank, as far as I saw, had everything requisite in surgical treatment, nursing, etc., he had watches much of the time. He was so good and well-behaved and affectionate, I myself liked him very much. I was in the habit of coming in afternoons and sitting by him and soothing him, and he liked to have me, liked to put his arm out and lay his hand on my knee, would keep it so a long while. Toward the last he was more restless and flighty at night, often fancied himself with his regiment. By his talk sometimes seemed as if his feelings were hurt by being blamed by his officers for something he was entirely innocent of said, I never in my life was thought capable of such a thing, and never was. At other times he would fancy himself talking as it seemed to children or such like, his relatives, I suppose, and giving them good advice, would talk to them a long while. All the time he was out of his head, not one single bad word or idea escaped him. It was remarked that many a man's conversation in his senses was not half as good as Frank's delirium. He seemed quite willing to die. He had become very weak and had suffered a good deal, and was perfectly resigned, poor boy. I do not know his past life, but I feel as if it must have been good. 
At any rate, what I saw of him here, under the most trying circumstances, with a painful wound, and among strangers, I can say that he behaved so brave, so composed, and so sweet and affectionate, it could not be surpassed. And now, like many other noble and good men, after serving his country as a soldier, he has yielded up his young life at the very outset in her service. Such things are gloomy, yet there is a text, God doeth all things well, the meaning of which after due time appears to the soul. I thought perhaps a few words, though from a stranger about your son, from one who is with him at the last, might be worth while. For I loved the young man, though I but saw him immediately to lose him. I am merely a friend visiting the hospitals occasionally to cheer the wounded and sick. W. W. The Army's Returning May 7, Sunday Today, as I was walking a mile or two south of Alexandria, I fell in with several large squads of the returning Western Army, Sherman's men as they called themselves. About a thousand in all, the largest portion of them half sick, some convalescents, on their way to a hospital camp. These fragmentary excerpts, with the unmistakable Western physiognomy and idioms, crawling along slowly, after a great campaign blown this way, as it were, out of their latitude, I marked with curiosity, and talked with off and on for over an hour. Here and there was one very sick, but all were able to walk except some of the last who had given out, and were seated on the ground, faint and despondent. These I tried to cheer, told them the camp they were to reach was only a little way further over the hill, and so got them up and started, accompanying some of the worst a little way and helping them, or putting them under the support of stronger comrades. May 21. Saw General Sheridan and his cavalry today. A strong, attractive sight. The men were mostly young, a few middle-aged, superb-looking fellows, brown, spare, keen, with well-worn clothing, many with pieces of waterproof cloth around their shoulders, hanging down. They dashed along pretty fast, in wide, close ranks, all spattered with mud, no holiday soldiers, brigade after brigade. I could have watched for a week. Sheridan stood on a balcony under a big tree, coolly smoking a cigar. His looks and manner impressed me favorably. May 22. Having been taking a walk along Pennsylvania Avenue and 7th Street North, the city is full of soldiers running around loose, officers everywhere of all grades. All have the weather-beaten look of practical service. It is a sight I never tire of. All the armies are now here, or portions of them, for tomorrow's review. You see them swarming like bees everywhere. The Grand Review For two days now the broad spaces of Pennsylvania Avenue along to Treasury Hill, and so by detour around to the President's House, and so up to Georgetown, and across the Aqueduct Bridge, have been alive with a magnificent sight, the returning armies. In their wide ranks stretching clear across the avenue, I watched them march or ride along at a brisk pace, through two whole days, infantry, cavalry, artillery, some two hundred thousand men. Some days afterwards one or two other corps, and then still afterwards a good part of Sherman's immense army, brought up from Charleston, Savannah, etc. Western Soldiers May 26-27 The streets, the public buildings and grounds of Washington still swarm with soldiers from Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Missouri, Iowa, and all the western states. I am continually meeting and talking with them. They often speak to me first, and always show great sociability, and glad to have a good interchange of chat. These western soldiers are more slow in their movements, and in their intellectual quality also, have no extreme alertness. 
They are larger in size, have a more serious physiognomy, are continually looking at you as they pass in the street. They are largely animal, and handsomely so. During the war I have been at times with the 14th, 15th, 17th, and 20th Corps. I always feel drawn toward the men, and like their personal contact when we are crowded close together, as frequently these days in the streetcars. They all think the world of General Sherman, call him Old Bill or sometimes Uncle Billy. A Soldier on Lincoln May 28. As I sat by the bedside of a sick Michigan soldier in hospital today, a convalescent from the adjoining bed rose and came to me, and presently we began talking. He was a middle-aged man, belonged to the 2nd Virginia Regiment, but lived in Racine, Ohio, and had a family there. He spoke of President Lincoln and said, The war is over, and many are lost, and now we have lost the best, the fairest, the truest man in America. Take him altogether, he was the best man this country ever produced. It was quite a while I thought very different, but some time before the murder, that's the way I have seen it. There was deep earnestness in the soldier. I found upon further talk that he had known Mr. Lincoln personally, and quite closely years before. He was a veteran, was now in the fifth year of his service, was a cavalry man, and had been in a good deal of hard fighting. Two brothers, one south, one north. May 28th to 29. I stayed tonight a long time by the bedside of a new patient, a young Baltimorean, aged about 19 years, WSP, 2nd Maryland, Southern. Very feeble, right leg amputated, can't sleep hardly at all has taken a great deal of morphine, which, as usual, is costing more than it comes to. Evidently very intelligent and well-bred, very affectionate, held on to my hand and put it by his face, not willing to let me leave. As I was lingering, soothing him in his pain, he says to me suddenly, I hardly think you know who I am. I do not wish to impose upon you. I am a rebel soldier. I said I did not know that, but it made no difference. Visiting him daily for about two weeks after that while he lived, death had marked him, and he was quite alone. I loved him much, always kissed him, and he did me. In an adjoining ward I found his brother, an officer of rank, a Union soldier, a brave and religious man, Colonel Clifton K. Prentice, 6th Maryland Infantry, 6th Corps, wounded in one of the engagements at Petersburg, April 2. Lingered, suffered much, died in Brooklyn, August 20, 65. It was in the same battle both were hit. One was a strong Unionist, the other a Secesh. Both fought on their respective sides, both badly wounded, and both brought together here after a separation of four years. Each died for his cause. Some sad cases yet. May 31. James H. Williams, age 21, 3rd Virginia Cavalry. About as marked a case of a strong man brought low by a complication of diseases, laryngitis, fever, debility, and diarrhea, as I have ever seen, has superb physique, remains swarthy yet, and flushed and red with fever, is altogether flighty, flesh of his great breast and arms tremulous, and pulse pounding away with treble quickness, lies a good deal of the time in a partial sleep, but with low muttering and groans, a sleep in which there is no rest. Powerful as he is, and so young, he will not be able to stand many more days of the strain and sapping heat of yesterday and today. His throat is in a bad way, tongue and lips parched. When I ask him how he feels, he is able just to articulate, I feel pretty bad yet, old man, and looks at me with his great bright eyes. Father, John Williams, Millensport, Ohio. June 9-10 to 10. 
I have been sitting late tonight by the bedside of a wounded captain, a special friend of mine, lying with a painful fracture of left leg in one of the hospitals, in a large ward partially vacant. The lights were put out, all but a little candle far from where I sat. The full moon shone in through the windows, making long, slanting, silvery patches on the floor. All was still. My friend, too, was silent, but could not sleep. So I sat there by him, slowly wafting the fan, and occupied with the musings that arose out of the scene. The long, shadowy ward, the beautiful ghostly moonlight on the floor, the white beds, here and there an occupant with huddled form, the bedclothes thrown off. The hospitals have a number of cases of sunstroke and exhaustion by heat from the late reviews. There are many such from the Sixth Corps, from the hot parade of day before yesterday. Some of these show cost the lives of scores of men. Sunday, September 10. Visited Douglas and Stanton hospitals. They are quite full. Many of the cases are bad ones, lingering wounds, and old sickness. There is a more than usual look of despair on the countenances of many of the men. Hope has left them. I went through the wards, talking as usual. There are several here from the Confederate Army whom I had seen in other hospitals, and they recognized me. Two were in a dying condition. Calhoun's Real Monument In one of the hospital tents for special cases, as I sat today tending a new amputation, I heard a couple of neighboring soldiers talking to each other from their cots. One down with fever but improving had come up belated from Charleston not long before. The other was what we now call an old veteran, i.e. he was a Connecticut youth, probably of less than the age of twenty-five years, the four last of which he had spent in active service in the war in all parts of the country. The two were chatting of one thing and another. The fever soldier spoke of John C. Calhoun's monument, which he had seen and was describing it. The veteran said, I have seen Calhoun's monument. That you saw is not the real monument, but I have seen it. It is the desolated ruined south. Nearly the whole generation of young men between seventeen and thirty destroyed or maimed. All the old families used up, the rich impoverished, the plantations covered with weeds, the slaves unloosed and become the masters, and the name of Southerner blackened with every shame. All that is Calhoun's real monument. Hospitals Closing October 3 There are two army hospitals now remaining. I went to the largest of these, Douglas, and spent the afternoon and evening. There are many sad cases, old wounds, incurable sickness, and some of the wounded from the March and April battles before Richmond. Few realize how sharp and bloody those closing battles were. Our men exposed themselves more than usual, pressed ahead without urging. Then the Southerners fought with extra desperation. Both sides knew that with the successful chasing of the rebel cabal from Richmond and the occupation of that city by the national troops, the game was up. The dead and wounded were unusually many. Of the wounded, the last lingering driblets have been brought to hospital here. I find many rebel wounded here, and have been extra busy today tending to the worst cases of them with the rest. October, November, and December, 65, Sundays. Every Sunday of these months visited Harewood Hospital out in the woods, pleasant and recluse, some two and a half or three miles north of the capital. The situation is healthy, with broken ground, grassy slopes, and patches of oak woods, the trees large and fine is one of the most extensive of the hospitals, now reduced to four or five partially occupied wards, the numerous others being vacant. In November this became the last military hospital kept up by the government, all the others being closed. Cases of the worst and most incurable wounds, obstinate illness, and of poor fellows who have no homes to go to are found here.
December 10, Sunday. Again spending a good part of the day at Harewood. I write this about an hour before sundown. I have walked out for a few minutes to the edge of the woods to soothe myself with the hour and scene. It is a glorious, warm, golden, sunny, still afternoon. The only noise is from a crowd of cawing crows on some trees three hundred yards distant. Clusters of gnats swimming and dancing in the air in all directions. The oak leaves are thick under the bare trees and give a strong and delicious perfume. Inside the wards everything is gloomy. Death is there. As I entered I was confronted by it the first thing, a corpse of a poor soldier just dead of typhoid fever. The attendants had just straightened the limbs, put coppers on the eyes, and were laying it out. The roads. A great recreation the past three years has been in taking long walks out from Washington, five, seven, perhaps ten miles and back, generally with my friend Peter Doyle, who is as fond of it as I am. Fine moonlight nights, over the perfect military roads, hard and smooth, or Sundays, we had these delightful walks, never to be forgotten. The roads connecting Washington and the numerous forts around the city made one useful result at any rate out of the war. Typical Soldiers Even the typical soldiers I have been personally intimate with, it seems to me if I were to make a list of them it would be like a city directory. Some few only have I mentioned in the foregoing pages. Most are dead, a few yet living. There is Reuben Farwell of Michigan, Little Mitch. Benton H. Wilson, Color Bearer. 185th New York, William Stansbury, Manville Winterstein, Ohio, Bethel Smith, Captain Sims of 51st New York, killed at Petersburg Mine Explosion, Captain Sam Pooley and Lieutenant Fred McCready, same regiment, also same regiment, my brother, George W. Whitman, in active service all through, four years, re-enlisting twice, was promoted step by step several times immediately after battles. Lieutenant, Captain, Major, and Lieutenant Colonel, was in the actions at Roanoke, New Bern, Second Bull Run, Chantilly, South Mountain, Antietam, Fredericksburg, Vicksburg, Jackson, the bloody conflicts of the wilderness, and at Spotsylvania, Cold Harbor, and afterwards round Petersburg. At one of these latter was taken prisoner and passed four or five months in secesh military prisons, narrowly escaping with life from a severe fever, from starvation, and half-nakedness in the winter. What a history that 51st New York had. Went out early, marched, fought everywhere, was in storms at sea, nearly wrecked, stormed forts, tramped hither and yon in Virginia, night and day, summer of 62. Afterwards, Kentucky and Mississippi. Re-enlisted, was in all the engagements and campaigns, as above. I strengthen and comfort myself much with the certainty that the capacity for just such regiments, hundreds, thousands of them, is inexhaustible in the United States and that there isn't a country nor a township in the Republic, nor a street in any city, but could turn out and on occasion would turn out lots of just such typical soldiers, whenever wanted. Convulsiveness As I have looked over the proof sheets of the preceding pages, I have once or twice feared that my diary would prove at best but a batch of convulsively written reminiscences. Well, be it so. They are but parts of the actual distraction, heat, smoke, and excitement of these times. The war itself, with the temper of society preceding it, can indeed be best described by that very word, convulsiveness. Three years summed up. During those three years in hospital, camp or field, I made over 600 visits or tours and went, as I estimate, counting all, among from 80,000 to 100,000 of the wounded and sick, 
as sustainer of spirit and body in some degree, in time of need. These visits varied from an hour or two to all day or night, for with dear or critical cases I generally watched all night. Sometimes I took up my quarters in the hospital and slept or watched there several nights in succession. Those three years I consider the greatest privilege and satisfaction, with all their feverish excitements and physical deprivations and lamentable sights, and, of course, the most profound lesson of my life. I can say that in my ministerings I comprehended all, whoever came in my way, northern or southern, and slighted none. It aroused and brought out and decided undreamed-of depths of emotion. It has given me my most fervent views of the true ensemble and extent of the states. While I was with wounded and sick in thousands of cases from the New England states and from New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and from Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and all the western states, I was with more or less from all the states, north and south, without exception. I was with many from the border states, especially from Maryland and Virginia, and found during those lurid years 1862 to 63 far more Union Southerners, especially Tennesseans, than is supposed. I was with many rebel officers and men among our wounded, and gave them always what I had, and tried to cheer them the same as any. I was among the army teamsters considerably, and, indeed, always found myself drawn to them. Among the black soldiers, wounded or sick, and in the contraband camps, I also took my way whenever in their neighborhood, and did what I could for them. The million dead, too, summed up. The dead in this war, there they lie, strewing the fields and woods and valleys and battlefields of the South. Virginia, the peninsula, Malvern Hill and Fair Oaks, the banks of the Chickahominy, the terraces of Fredericksburg, Antietam Bridge, the grisly ravines of Manassas, the bloody promenade of the wilderness, the varieties of the strayed dead. The estimate of the War Department is 25,000 national soldiers killed in battle and never buried at all, 5,000 drowned, 15,000 inhumed by strangers or on the march in haste in hitherto unfound localities, 2,000 graves covered by sand and mud by Mississippi freshets, 3,000 carried away by caving in of banks, etc., Gettysburg, the West, Southwest, Vicksburg, Chattanooga, the trenches of Petersburg, the numberless battles, camps, hospitals everywhere, the crop reaped by the mighty reapers, typhoid, dysentery, inflammations, and blackest and loathsome of all, the dead and living burial pits, the prison pens of Andersonville, Salisbury, Belle Isle, etc., not Dante's pictured hell in all its woes, its degradations, filthy torments, excelled those prisons. The dead, the dead, the dead, our dead, or south and north, ours all, 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 finally dear to me, or east or west, Atlantic coast or Mississippi valley, somewhere they crawled to die, alone, in bushes, low gullies, or on the sides of hills, there in secluded spots their skeletons, bleached bones, tufts of hair, buttons, fragments of clothing are occasionally found yet. Our young men once so handsome and so joyous taken from us. The son from the mother, the husband from the wife, the dear friend from the dear friend. The clusters of camp graves in Georgia, the Carolinas, and in Tennessee. The single graves left in the woods or by the roadside. Hundreds, thousands obliterated. The corpses floated down the rivers and caught and lodged. Dozens, scores floated down the upper Potomac after the cavalry engagements, the pursuit of Lee following Gettysburg. Some lie at the bottom of the sea, 
the general million, and the special cemeteries in almost all the states, the infinite dead, the land entire saturated, perfumed with their impalpable ashes exhalation, in nature's chemistry distilled, and shall be so forever, in every future grain of wheat and ear of corn, and every flower that grows, and every breath we draw. Not only northern dead leavening southern soil, thousands, aye, tens of thousands of southerners, crumble today in northern earth. And everywhere among these countless graves, everywhere in the many soldiers' cemeteries of the nation, there are now, I believe, over seventy of them. As at the time in the vast trenches, the depositories of slain, northern and southern, after the great battles, not only where the scathing trail passed those years, but radiating since in all the peaceful quarters of the land, we see, and ages yet may see, on monuments and gravestones, singly or in masses, to thousands or tens of thousands, the significant word, unknown. In some of the cemeteries, nearly all the dead are unknown. At Salisbury, North Carolina, for instance, the known are only 85, while the unknown are 12,027, and 11,700 of these are buried in trenches. A national monument has been put up here, by order of Congress, to mark the spot, but what visible, material monument can ever fittingly commemorate that spot? The real war will never get in the books. And so goodbye to the war. I know not how it may have been, or may be, to others. To me the main interest I found, and still on recollection find, in the rank and file of the armies, both sides, and in those specimens amid the hospitals, and even the dead on the field. To me the points illustrating the latent personal character and eligibilities of these states, in the two or three millions of American young and middle-aged men, north and south, embodied in those armies, and especially the one-third or one-fourth of their number stricken by wounds or disease at some time in the course of the contest, were of more significance even than the political interests involved. As so much of a race depends on how it faces death, and how it stands personal anguish and sickness, as in the glints of emotions under emergencies, and the indirect traits and asides in Plutarch, we get far profounder clues to the antique world than all its more formal history. Future years will never know the seething hell and the black infernal background of countless minor scenes and interiors, not the official surface courteousness of the generals, not the few great battles of the secession war, and it is best they should not. The real war will never get in the books. In the mushy influences of current times, too, the fervid atmosphere and typical events of those years are in danger of being totally forgotten. I have at night watched by the side of a sick man in the hospital, one who could not live many hours. I have seen his eyes flash and burn as he raised himself and recurred to the cruelties on his surrendered brother, and mutilations of the corpse afterward. See in the preceding pages the incident at Upperville. The seventeen killed as in the description were left there on the ground. After they dropped dead, no one touched them. All were made sure of, however. The carcasses were left for the citizens to bury or not as they chose. Such was the war. It was not a quadrille in a ballroom. Its interior history will not only never be written, its practicality, minutiae, of deeds and passions will never be even suggested. The actual soldier of 1862-65, to 65, north and south, with all his ways, his incredible dauntlessness, habits, practices, tastes, language, his fierce friendship, his appetite, rankness, 
his superb strength and animality, lawless gait, and a hundred unnamed lights and shades of camp, I say, will never be written, perhaps must not and should not be. The preceding notes may furnish a few stray glimpses into that life, and into those lurid interiors, never to be fully conveyed to the future. The hospital part of the drama from 61 to 65 deserves indeed to be recorded. Of that many-threaded drama, with its sudden and strange surprises, its confounding of prophecies, its moments of despair, the dread of foreign interference, the interminable campaigns, the bloody battles, the mighty and cumbrous and green armies, the drafts and bounties, the immense money expenditure, like a heavy pouring constant rain, with, over the whole land, the last three years of the struggle, an unending, universal mourning wail of women, parents, orphans, the marrow of the tragedy concentrated in those army hospitals. It seemed sometimes as if the whole interest of the land, north and south, was one vast central hospital, and all the rest of the affair but flanges. Those forming the untold and unwritten history of the war, infinitely greater, like life's, than the few scraps and distortions that are ever told or written. Think how much, and of importance, will be, how much civic and military has already been, buried in the grave, in eternal darkness. End of chapter 7